Um, so, fellas, did anything else happen in sports this week? Um, I don't know. I saw some baseball highlights. Yeah, unfortunately, the Olympic Games are now over. Yeah. 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 There's a a lot of yellow flags, Flavin. Can't imagine why. Welcome back to Motorsport 101. Hey gang, welcome to episode 317 of Motorsport 101. I'm your friendly neighborhood host, Mr. Dre Harrison. And um, speaking of intros and outros, since the recording of episode 315, I've now had a chance to watch said episode. Now it is live to the viewing public. Ryan Eric King, you had one job down there. You had one job with the outro. How could you no, butcher my legacy like this? No, you see, this is perfect. So so Ryan invented a word then. I just did one right now in this most recent intro. And yeah, then yeah. and then you and RJ can figure out what to botch for, for the next week. It's a cycle. This is King, I want answers. What happened? Um I just goofed. I I thought I had it. I I just I just dropped it across the line. You fumbled uh, the bag harder than Dennis Schroeder. Oh, <laughs> my man went full to Sean Jackson. He just drops the ball at the one yard line. Like like oh, we were so close, King. We were so close. What happened, my man? It's just like oh, I was I was deeply offended um, for, for an entire week. I literally in our supporters general in our Discord server literally put. King, what did you do to my outro in capital letters? I was uh, I was upset. <laughs> but, Things uh, are getting a little bit case sensitive, <laughs> to, to say the least. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the nitty gritty of the show in a minute. Yeah, but we'll be talking all about Nashville's big return to the IndyCar and their brand new street circuit and uh, how it didn't exactly go according to plan. Uh, to say the least. And we'll also be talking about MotoGP Styrian Grand Prix. They're back for the first time after their summer break. And the race was somehow maybe the third biggest story to come out of Styria this weekend. It took a big old backseat. We got a brand new winner as well for the second straight year in Styria. We had a brand new winner. And it kind of was put on the back burner because a, uh, a certain legendary figure in the sport announced he is hanging up the gloves at the end of the year. No, it's not Lynn Jarvis. Or Alberto Puig, unfortunately, in, in Cam's case. Um, Damn, what a... Sh- you know, my <laughs> you disappointment know. is immeasurable and my day is ruined. Like, yes. honestly, I'd want to retire from my sport, too, if somehow my home country won the European... won the Eurovision Song Contest, won the, the UEFA European Championship, and also won Olympic gold medals in the 100-meter sprint and also the high jump. I'd be like, okay, I'm not topping this year. I'm out. It's over. It's over. It's, 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 it's over. It's, it's, it's over. Like, 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 nothing you can do at this point validly. It's like, Italy is doing backflips right now. Like... An Italian, a black Italian, won the hundred meters. I'm just like, I was like, this is amazing. Please, <laughs> the seeds. Please let like, this um, dude be clean. Please let this one be clean. <laughs> I don't want another one of these. No. I, I'm hoping for this, and I'm hoping that, like, yo, I, 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 I think for all of us, like, best moment of the limps, the summer limps mm. in Tokyo. Because I mean, there are a lot of bad moments, like, yeah. you know, maybe accidentally sneaking in a lambda variant, and just before the start of the games. Yeah. But uh, best moments, uh, 
Carson Warholm, Rye Benjamin, 400 meter men's hurdle. That was my pick. Oh, I was going to go around the host and say, what was your favorite moment at the Olympics? I did ask us on Twitter. But um, like for me personally, yeah. Carsten Varholm running a 45.94 in the 400 hurdles remains maybe the most bonkers lap of a track I have ever seen. And I was live when Wade Van Niekerk ran it flat in 43.03. Like... Three of the four fastest like 400 hurdles runs in history took place in that race. Three of them were under the old world record that was only six weeks old in the first place. And, and Carsten Varholm ran sub-46. Yeah. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing stuff. King, do you have any other amazing moments do you want to get through? Oh, um, probably. We- I'd have to narrow it down to two other moments at the track. Mm. Uh, Mondo Duplantis fucking dominating, dominating the pole vault, almost breaking the world record. Grazed it with his vest on the way down. I'm like, he was this close. Oh. And then the other moment I have to mention is uh, the the women's hundred meters with, well, the women's uh, the women's hundred meters where uh, Jamaica swept the podium. Oh yes. Oh, yes. Jamaican track and field is back, baby. (laughs) For the record, me and King are both of Jamaican heritage, so as you can imagine, my house was hollering when we got the clean sweep. (laughs) We were jumping on the sofa, like, and and Elaine Thompson running quite possibly the fastest legal 100 metres maybe in history, depending on who you ask. Um, Because, yeah, a a 10.61 Olympic record out of nowhere. Like, what the fuck did we just witness? Uh, There was was a lot of world records that fell this year. (laughs) Mm. Very fast track. Yeah, and there have been... And that was the third podium sweep in the last three Olympic Games. There's only been one at each of the previous three Olympic Games, and two of them are Jamaican, obviously. London 2012 and the men's 200, and now the women's 100. That was the 50th anniversary of Jamaica's independence as a country, <laughs> and that was Bolt, Blake, and Warren Weir. And again, every Jamaican in London were go- was going ballistic. Nothing got done the following day. Take so, it from me. I'm we so were hollering. Oh, that was that was a that was a great time. Um, if, if any other moments you guys want to shout out there, RJ? Um, skateboarding I, uh, is full of. Is is full of children. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Because back when I was really in extreme sports, when I was about the age that like most of the gold medal winners were in skateboarding, you know, like on average, like most of the competitors in the next games medal round are like early mid twenties, maybe mm-hmm. late twenties, early thirties if they're pushing it. Now all the medalists are like teenagers. I don't understand. Children. I can vividly remember when it was a big deal that Travis Pastrana, at the age of fifteen, was not only in a freestyle motocross competition but actually winning gold medals. And, of course, this was back before they learned how to do bicycle flips. Uh, In the cycling road races, somebody lost track of the leader and cost themselves a gold medal. Oh, my God! (laughs) What a legend! That was amazing to watch! (laughs) I watched the Madison for the first time. Uh, That was uh, just as King described. It was basically like a stock car race on bicycles. Sorry, I'm just describing Laura Kenny and Katie Archibald's race in the women's Madison. False we had. I, I did. I did. I, I didn't know we would have NASCAR 2006 total team control, but with bicycles. <laughs> it was um, awesome. People was awesome. were very shitty to Simone Biles uh, for unfounded That's reasons, sucked. but 
you know, she did get her medal in the end, and and we got Sunisa Lee breaking out all the stops to win gold and women's all round. Oh, that, that was and that and pass. to pull things away from America for a bit, we have to talk about Brazil getting their first ever uh, their first ever medals in gymnastics with. Rebecca Andrade getting a silver in the all-around and a gold in the awesome. vault. And, That's right. and uh, obviously there's a big deal in Brazil because she's a black athlete and they don't have many of those. And also, nope. she had torn her ACL three times before these games. Yeah. Three? Any basketball player that you think has gone through too many knee surgeries, Rebecca Andrade has gone through even more than that. Yeah. Like, I, mean, just, I, don't just, like, I don't know, I think... I don't know, I think we can have a two-hour-long podcast between her and Derek Rose for knee surgeries. <laughs> oh, Lord of my... I, I, I knew she, her being a black Brazilian was a huge deal, but three ACL tears? That's... No. That's big. Most players don't come back the same after one, let alone three. That's... That, that's unheard of! What else um, did we watch? Um, the shootout, uh, penalty shootouts to decide... It was Canada versus Sweden. I think this was for the women's soccer gold medal, yeah, which yes. went to penalty kicks, which went to an absolute shit show. Mm-hmm. A, a, a high, a high drama shit show. You know, foreshadowing future discussion points, but still wild. Uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll reel off too for me. Um, Robert Fink putting in the last fifty meters of the eight hundred meter freestyle swim. The most ridiculous 50 meters of swimming I had ever seen. <laughs> he was nowhere with 50 meters to go. Passed like, everybody to win the gold medal. It's like it's like playing one of those Olympic video games of a turbo controller. It was just like, oh, I've turned the turbo on, and next thing you know, he's on the other end of the pool. Uh, like, it's just, it was ridiculous. Um, that one, and uh, as a second one, Elliot Kipchoge is... As box office a runner <laughs> as a runner could be. He's not human. He's not. 28 degree heat in a Japanese marathon and he's running 208. And that was a that's, 14... That's, that's slow for him. That, that, that's, that, that, that's slow for him. There yeah. was a 14 kilometer... There was a 14 minute 5k in the middle of that marathon. I'm just sitting there going, what in God's name did they make you out of? Uh, like, he's like, built different. Like, I understand why they had to move the marathon away from Tokyo, because traditionally the Olympic marathon is the final event, and mm -hmm. it finishes in the Olympic Stadium, like, usually just before the closing ceremony. And if if everyone saw him enter the stadium as far ahead as he would have, it oh, yeah. would have been wild. He'd have had the whole track to himself. There's <laughs> so many moments to think, man, I understand why we can have nobody in the crowd in the stadiums at all during this event, but could you imagine yeah. how just, like, they would have gone, they, the crowd they'd, they'd have would lost have their gone minds. some parts? They'd have lost their minds. Like, a couple of quick ones for me before we move on to the actual motorsport, because we love talking the Olympics on these podcasts. We always oh, do yeah. this as a tradition. Yeah, I, was, I we, we, we don't get to do I it very often. that last Olympic discussion the last time yeah. we talked about the Summer Olympics. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, but that was like I was my first show. A couple of ones with a little bit of hometown bias. Jason Kenny becoming our greatest ever Olympian with his seventh gold medal in the Kier and going mm -hmm. for a long sprint at the end and catching everybody napping was awesome. Um, his wife, Laura, becoming arguably Britain's greatest ever female Olympian because she got her fifth gold as well in the Madison. 
which was a, a colossal beating of the entire field in spectacular fashion, was up there for me. And the men's high jump, Barship and had a share in the gold medal, was one of the coolest moments I've ever seen on a track and field. Mo- I, I didn't realise the two of them were so close friends, and Barshim being the coolest man in the world in shades and just laying around everywhere, like, during the competition was amazing. They both, for those guys who haven't seen it, quick, quick explainer, they tied after the competition had finished. They both failed at 2.39, I think three times over. They couldn't be separated on count back. They were going to have to jump off at a lower height to decide it. They was explaining the rules to them, and then Barshim immediately turns um, to, to the side and basically says... Do you want two goals? And with them being the close friends that they are, they were like, fuck it, we'll take two yeah. goals! And then everybody is win. happy. Everybody is happy. Barshim, the coolest man in the world, starts bawling his eyes out. It, it, it was it was the Olympic spirit in one very, very cool moment, I have to say, as well. That was awesome, awesome, awesome. For all things considered, it was a it was a very fun game. So, yeah, I don't know, all it's, things considered, like this was this was really fun. Could you imagine how much more fun this would be if like these Olympic committees weren't all corrupt as shit to some degree? I know, I know. And we were in the middle of uh, what what is now a resurging global pandemic because uh, well, you know, Oof. yeah. No, oh, I, I also have to mention one one particular moment that really stood out to me about how superhuman these athletes are. Uh, have to talk about the highest weight class in weightlifting. Oh, uh, yes! Oh, <laughs> my goodness! Lasha Tallahatsi from Georgia just casually breaking the world record in not only the snatch and clean and jerk and obviously the total for the competition. Just He almost lifted 500 kilograms! Half a ton! Half he a beat ton. the rest of the he beat the rest of the field of people by over ten percent. Yeah, yeah, he beat the field by forty seven kilos total. It was the it's like he his free lifts had started when everybody else had finished theirs. It was the most <laughs> unbelievable spectacle I have ever seen at an Olympics. Where it's like this guy's in a totally different sport to everybody else. Yeah, and like everyone, and like everyone's talking about how you know young he is because he's relatively young in weightlifting terms. He's like twenty seven, and talking about <laughs> how in how in Paris he could probably. He could theoretically break the five hundred, like the five hundred kilo barrier for the total for the total competition score. WWE should just hire this dude to do all the shit Braun Strowman used to do before he jumped the shark. <laughs> we, we should we should separate this into its own little uh, little Easter egg episode, given we've just spoken about the Olympics for. No, good 15 minutes. <laughs> don't, yeah. don't care. No, yeah, don't you'll, care. You'll either figure out, like, in post, if you're listening to this, whether I edited this down or not. <laughs> we'll never know. We, we don't, it's we don't get to talk about the Olympics that often, and it just yeah, so happens that this year... Years. Yeah, th- this year happened to be a good one. It was. It was a good one yeah. indeed. Should we talk some motorsport, feathers? No. Oh, yeah. Good Let's idea. Uh, so yeah, we'll talk, we're talking Nashville for IndyCar and MotoGP and Styria all over the next 50 minutes or so. But in the meantime, you can find us on uh, all sorts of places. We're on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. I've got it on the TV now as a plug. YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Well, you can is, subscribe to us on there. This <laughs> is a <ascended> advertisement. 
important meta. Um, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport101. We're on Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport101. We're on Twitter and Motorsport underscore 101. Um, if you want to find our personal handles, you can if they're on the screen right now. If you're watching on YouTube, if not, they're at Harrison101 HD, at RJ O'Connell, at Ryan Eric King, and at C Buckley917. Um, we've got a website, Motorsport101. You can follow us on Instagram, Motorsport101Pod. You can follow us on there if you like. Um, extra bits and pieces on there, as well as, uh, as, well as notes uh, when new shows go live. And if you really, really like us, you can back us financially on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport101. Five bucks gets you early access to all of the audio versions of our shows. You can upgrade to ten bucks for the video version and access to the supporters club of our Discord server where you can listen to these episodes live as they're being recorded. Some of you guys in the chat are right now. Shout out to Vic and Finley. Good to see you. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, right. Without further ado, let's get into IndyCar's return to Nashville. RJ, the floor is yours. <laughs> Holy shit. What a wild weekend that was. First, inaugural Music City Grand Prix in downtown Nashville. Built around scenic Nissan Stadium. Home of your Tennessee Titans, but not my Tennessee Titans. I, I, I could care less. <laughs> Interestingly <laughs> enough... This is wee shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not including red flags... Two hours and 18 minutes. Average speed is 72 miles an hour. If you include the red flags, this race took nearly three hours from start to finish. We almost we almost hit sunset. Nine yeah. cautions, 33 out of the 80 laps, two different red flags. Here's some of the shit that happened. Dalton Carrot's steering wheel fell off the car in the first lap of the race. Scott McLaughlin, after in between one of the best saves I've ever seen coming off the hellacious transition off of the Korean War Veterans Memorial Bridge and on t and down into Turn 9 going on to Interstate Drive, which uh, trouble spot all weekend, uh, mm -hmm. he gets taken out by Ed Jones, and then he gets taken out by Will Power, who decides, Will Power decides he wants to turn this into his own, like, rendition of the Penske games, because he bounces <laughs> off him, and then he also checks up in the Simon Paginot, and that causes a track blocker, which causes our first red flag, one quarter of the way in the race. We get all that sorted out, and then Renus VK spins on his own. Cody Ware, who, through sheer force of will, works his way up into the top ten on merit, spins, stalls, can't do a three-point turn, and is parked for the rest of the race because he can't maintain a competitive minimum speed. Paddle Ward Amazing. barges out Xander Rossi to wall in a race which has huge championship implication because that just dropped him down to third in the standings. Colton Herta dominated this weekend. Fastest in first practice, fastest in second practice, just beat the brakes off everybody in qualifying and said he was going to win this race. 39 laps led more than anybody else. But then after getting away with locking up in a turn nine with about 12 to go, he then stops into the wall with five to go and brings out our second red flag. And then, of course, we got to talk about Marcus Erickson. Marcus Erickson, before the fifth lap of the race, goes... T up to three meters up in the air off of the back of Sebastian Bourdais' car. Bourdais has to retire, and he is not happy about it at all. Erickson has to go to the pits twice. He has to go get a penalty for um, for getting repairs while the pit lane's closed. And then he has a stop-go penalty serve for the contact with Bourdais. He somehow, after five pit stops, and after all these yellow flags and stoppages, Marcus Erickson wins the race from 18th on the grid, holding off Scott Nitson with two laps to go after the second lap of the race. 
and James Hinchcliffe getting his first podium this season doesn't even register like the top ten weirdest things that happened on this afternoon. I'm going to say my thoughts of what I thought about this race, but what y'all think of this? Oh, painful! Lord. It was admittedly the last portion of the race was fun. It was entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. But everything it took to get up to that point was frustrating. It was hard to watch. Let's, let's put it to you this way. In our Discord, we have a good friend of the show, Patreon backer, and his name is Toki. We love him here. He's a very good sport. Toki is the biggest Marcus Erickson fan you will ever meet in your life. Right? Loves Marcus Erickson. He bailed while Erickson was running second in this race. About 60 laps in. That's how you know this was painful to get to the end. King is absolutely right. The last 30-odd laps was fun. But the fa- it took two hours of pain, frustration, and I don't think we had a green flag run of more than maybe eight laps. And the average green flag run was lap. less than five laps. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, there was a, there was a spill of water, or maybe it was whatever yeah. kind of alcoholic spirits from, uh, from, like, from like the alcoholic beverage company that paid for sponsorship at turn three. Like, we had a whole spill on the track that lengthened one of these cautions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It was one of the most farcical races I have seen in top flight motorsport ever. This was a mess. This. It. it, This, 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 this man, Will Power, he's got to go. (laughs) <laughs> he's got to go I know you think if he went 3 for 3 and hit Newgarden that Roger wouldn't have torn that contract oh. up in a heartbeat oh, oh, yeah. Joseph, Newgarden, he, Joseph Newgarden the home hero bended and qualified Right, not even in the top twenty weirdest storylines of this race. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, they'll tell you that he officially retired due to crash damage after that track blocker, uh, eighteen nineteen laps in the race, which is technically true. But he was also parked because his team tried to fix the car and disqualified. In the last official parking, we we yeah. we've gone back to this. We we we've looked through the archives, yeah, and the last time. Shout out to uh, supporter of the show, Jason, for finding this. The last time we can find a, an IndyCar series disqualification that was not huh. related to minimum speed yeah. was 1995 with little Al, Al Unser Jr., disqualified from a win, which was later reinstated postseason. So then if you have, uh, so then have to go back a little bit further to find the Nets disqualification that actually stuck, and that's Robbie Gordon at Long Beach. Again, all things converge upon Robbie Gobby, Gordon Gordon. Yeah. Keep in mind, this does not necessarily include uh, Champ Car and Cart, because, well, we don't have, we, we, this, uh, some of those records are gone, because that series is dead. Um, oh, I... I don't even know how to describe what we witnessed because after like the third two corner in caution, I kind of just disassociated for the rest of the event <laughs> because if I didn't, I was going to lose my mind. It was a test of patience. It was just like for, it, it, the 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 acronym FFS came up a lot when I was watching this race because it was like we just couldn't go more than five laps without another. 
Right, the thing is, the thing what, is, what I liked is but, uh, is IMSA IMSA pit reporter Shay Adam on Twitter started counting not laps but minutes between cautions because we weren't even finishing single laps before we had a wad of cars in the wall. Yeah, ridiculous. It, it, it you can't possibly say this was a good look for anybody involved, and I don't want to. Fur- I don't want to fully blame the track promoters and obviously the layout that. That, that came around as a result of this. The driving etiquette was poor across the across the board this weekend. Some guys made errors, that's one thing, but the racecraft was bad from it, certain people. It, it's yeah. something that we normally associate with Formula E, where the drivers know overtaking's going to be at a premium, so they force the issue whenever there's the opportunity to even look at an overtake. Yeah, yeah, the problem is one of the one of the primary overtaking spots on this track, you needed to get it, both drivers needed to get it exactly right, or you were going to bang wheels, go wide, the car on the outside was going to go into the wall, chances are the car on the inside was going to go into the wall, and then it blocks the track for half the field. It happened for Patrizio Award and Alex Rossi. And it happened between Will Power and Simon Pagino. You know, Simon was putting together, like, the first really good race of the year besides Indy for him. And Will Power just dive-bombed him. Put him in the wall, blocked the track. Um, Will Power is a world champion of this series. He is an Indy 500 winner. Statistically, he's one of the greatest to ever do it. And on Sunday, he looked like a rookie desperate for a result. Yeah, it was a mess. Unfortunately, the, it, two of his victims in that regard were his teammates. Yeah. I can only imagine the Penske... I can only imagine the Penske debrief after the race was locking Will in a cage with Simon and Scotty. <laughs> with clubs. <laughs> and Scotty saying, who's getting fired now? <laughs> Uh, oh, oh, oh boy, that would have been fun. It's like, okay, we're going to put an angry Paginot and McLaughlin in a cage with power, and there's only two contracts outside the cage. <laughs> Whoever comes out alive gets the contracts. Um, I do it, like, um, just as a side note, I like that one of the first things Colton Hurt did after he got out of the car, and, and we were worried about his hands because he didn't get a chance to take his hands off the steering wheel. I love that one of the first things that he does is drown his frustration and sorrows in cheap, shitty, buffet-style dessert pizza. <laughs> you you got to do what you got to do. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Colton was... That is a man that's down bad. Mm. Colton was incredible this weekend and um, just got caught out on strategy, got to Erickson but couldn't do anything with him. Yeah. Mm. And then... Uh, Hurt hurt that tire on a dive bomb attempt that was never really going to work. And that tire, a couple laps later, just gave up. He turned in, the car didn't turn, and he walled it pretty hard. He did. Yeah, luckily he was okay. I mean, it won't be on YouTube because I don't think they put the qualifying sessions on there. But if you haven't, go out of your way to see if you can find the qualifying session. Because what Colton Nutter did at the end of that Saturday... Had to be seen to be believed. One of the single most impressive, like, far six qualifying runs I've ever seen. It was like he was digging time out from his shorts. It was it was ridiculous. Um, he's he the was only driver in the 113s. 
Yeah, the like he was seven temps clear of the field in qualifying. It was he was the fastest man at this track by a country mile, and it was all for naught. Darn shame because he was fantastic pretty much all weekend long. I'm too busy hollering at James Hinchcliffe finishing third to really emotionally attach myself to that at this point oh! in time. Because I was like, yes, come on. That, that might be the only <laughs> thing. Might be the only thing that will make me stomach this race. We'll go that we're going down, we know we're going down. There's a good chance Romain Grosjean's probably taking that seat next year, but we're going down his or, swinging. His baby. Or Hunter <laughs> it, it, it may be. Marcus Armstrong just out there obviously just taking in the Nashville nightlife. Wink wink. Of course. <laughs> I think it's it's just, just like the animals down it. there this weekend. Shout out to shout out to her at Relax. But um fellas, question to ask as well. Like the track came under a lot of scrutiny. Um, given it, it was probably a, a good portion to blame for at least some of the wrecking that we had over the course of the weekend. Uh, I'm going to point this one at RJ first because he actually knows the area, given he's a hometown Nashville kid. How would you improve it if you had the chance? Yeah. I defer to the words of the race winner, Marcus Erickson, who, again, that he won from 18th on the grid on a street race where passing comes at a premium. It, that's already wild enough. That he wanted in the circumstances did even more wild. And take it with a grain of salt, but Erickson's suggestion up at the north end of the circuit, right? That's that turn four to turn eight complex where especially four, five, and six was compared to the castle complex of Baku. Only there's not as much cool shit surrounding it because that's not in the, in the coolest part of Nashville. Right. Maybe you well, can widen I, sh- that. I should point out that it's at the south side of the track. That's at the south side. Okay, because the track the track map had that up north. Yeah, the track map is inverted. Um, I'm, so, I'm so scared. Thanks, okay. so, so on the south side of <laughs> the circuit, sense. on the south side of the circuit, you widen that out by maybe a meter or two. You don't have to make it as narrow as Baku does. That could do that along with just better driver etiquette, using a bit more discretion would go a long way to improve. Like, the tweaks that you would have to make the circuit to the circuit to make a drastic quality of life improvement are, are very minimal, and it all is right around that section. Yeah. You widen it out just a little bit if you can, and I think that solves a lot of problems while also opening up an opportunity for better for more overtaking. Yeah. So the the big issue that pretty much Erickson points out and RJ mentions is. Uh, a street called First Avenue South. It is absurdly narrow. Uh, uh, mm. It is probably I, I like. Obviously, I've watched pretty much every Formula E race. I've never seen a section of any Formula E track as narrow as that section. No, me neither. Uh, I think the easiest solution wouldn't be to widen that area because obviously people live there, their businesses and homes. Yeah, uh, it yeah. would simply just extend the track a little bit instead of using First Avenue South. You extend the run off the bridge down one more block to uh, to Second Avenue South, which is slightly wider. Uh, it's not like First Avenue South is not really a street. It's more like an alleyway behind a bunch of buildings. Uh, oh, more or less. <laughs> You're racing down an alleyway, folks. <laughs> yeah, so pretty much like It'll, it'll make that section of the track a bit wider. It'll also allow uh, people to overtake off the bridge more easily because the transition on and off the bridge is really rough and you, and you really don't want to pull out to go alongside someone 
while going over that transition. Yeah, we want yeah, the a problems lot of were the problems were twofold. Yeah, the problems were twofold really because not only is the track very, very narrow in some places, um, you can correct that as as you as King mentioned by using different roads, extending the track in certain places. What's going to be a little more difficult to correct is the Sabring-esque surface at some parts of the track because the cars were bouncing up and down in the air on the transition up off the bridge. We and that meant that if you first practice, right? Boing, boing, boing all the and way down the track. Just, it's just like a fucking jolt once you come off the bridge back down the road. Interestingly enough, James Hinchcliffe told me told us like after the race, like, yeah, that transition's bad, but that's like the only trouble spot that they have. Like, if it wasn't for that, it wouldn't even be on the three bumpiest tracks that they race at, which I found fascinating. Yeah, wow. yeah, but specifically where that where that transition off the bridge comes, if you go offline there, you're either not going to make the corner because you don't have enough grip, or you're going to lock up because you don't have enough grip. It made overtaking there very, very difficult. Yeah, not to mention, like, Marcus Harrison's car was, like, fucking slippery as hell. I know they took some wing out of it, but, like, Colton Herta even matching the push-the-pass button was just like, I can't do anything with this dude. <laughs> oh, and by the way, the way Erickson's car came down and got damaged on the... On, I think it was, like, he had, like, a huge chunk of the right side floor taken out when he came down. Like, he didn't get out completely unscathed. I don't know how his suspension didn't break upon crashing down on the ground with the same sort of impact that ruined Richie Stanaway's ambitions of ever reaching Formula One back in FR 3.5 a few years ago. But Yeesh. he had a huge chunk of his floor taken out, which made it hard for him to make the right turns. Luckily, it's an anti-clockwise street circuit. Of course. So, hey. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> an anti-clockwise street circuit that runs past a 7-Eleven and a quality and a, two a two-star chain motel but this one just so happens to have a guitar-shaped pool. Truly, truly America's Monaco. <laughs> it's the world's Definitely. largest outdoor bachelorette party. <laughs> Love it. I hate Love it. it here. Though, like, the one thing, yeah, that bridge is going to be an issue because uh, if you know anything about bridges, you simply just can't just repave a bridge. Yeah. No. Uh, so, yeah. with all that in mind, fellas, with all that in mind... Should we come back? Is this a one and done? Like, are we, is some work going to have to come uh, through here? I think I I think we should give it one more shot, but the track cannot continue to exist in this form. Some yeah. changes do have to take place. Not a lot, but some changes. Yeah, they they have to correct a couple choke points on this track because it's just these cars are just too wide. The drivers are too eager. And we got way too many incidents yeah. for to leave a good impression for a first race here. I wrote about it on race fans. I understand that like having a colossal shit show of a race year after year is not sustainable. But I will tell you this. They fucking pack the place every single day. Because here's the thing about Nashville as a, as a city. Like of a lot of the places in America, it has legitimate racing heritage. People love to go see automobile racing here, whether that's at the fairground speedway or what have you. This event, as an event itself, this was a success. 70,000 people in here, probably their first or second big post-COVID event. And they are just, and don't get me wrong, like, 
a lot of the grandstands were not fit, were not actually built until the morning of the race. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a side note. Grandstand six. Initially, they intended to cancel and refund those tickets, and a dedicated group of track workers stayed overnight in the pissing rain to get that grandstand built in time for race day. 70,000 in the heat and humidity. Mm. But I'll tell you this, as much of a farce as that race was, there is potential here for this event to be as much of a fixture on the calendar as Long Beach or Toronto when we're not having COVID or St. Petersburg. There's more character in some sections of this track than I ever saw out of like dull, decrepit shit boxes like the fucking Astrodome parking lot where we somehow managed to finesse two races a year out of. Honestly, you know, I'd I mean, say I'd say like even in its current state, this track is better than say exhibition place in, in Toronto. Oh yeah. Agree. Yeah. The bar the bar melted and is on the ground in a puddle <laughs> like the T one thousand from Terminator like, 2. If, if what I'll say is if I had to just quickly ahead. summarize like this race and its future, I'm just gonna simply say Nashville deserves better. Like yeah. yeah, yeah. This is this is the best option that they have. I mean, what else are they going to do? Tear up the contract and go race in some characterless mile and a half oval out of the <laughs> suburbs? We did that for eight years. It's time to move past Nashville Super Speedway, which is in Lebanon. Why not both? As a serious <laughs> note, um, what I'll say is it is not hopeless. The bones of a good track and a good event are here. Yeah. But they need a There's something here. They, they, yeah. they do. That's fair to say. No, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I, I haven't got anything else to say that the other guys haven't already said. I think there's definitely potential there. The atmosphere was great. I saw the fan reactions down there. There's clearly people. People were clearly really excited for this race, and it showed on TV. Um, and as, as Zoe points out in the chat, drivers were still out enjoying Nashville 3 a.m. on Monday. Oh, the uh, the joys of, of following oh, yeah. James Hinchcliffe. Yeah, this is but, this uh, is yeah. the perfect. The, these are the perfect building grounds for what could be a really great event for IndyCar. Yeah, agreed. That yeah. said, they just got to tweak the track, and it, people just have yeah. to drive like not idiots. Yeah, and honestly, yeah. Uh, like for decades, like people talked about competition between IndyCar and NASCAR and them racing at similar venues and even IndyCar cannibalizing its own markets. I think, like, say, if, if IndyCar went back to the good old, well, the good old days of giving places to race dates, if we have a street race at Nashville, say, late in the season, but early in the year we race the super speedway, I would have no problem with that. I mean, oh, that'd that's be great. I, mean, I that's think that fine. would be a perfect solution. I just think long term, like the street circuit is going to be a better place to for racing. Yeah, it's, it'll be a better draw because, like you know, I could see a race at Nashville Super Speedway. There's like a thousand people there, and you just have to flip a coin to see if the oval package is actually conducive to good racing <laughs> or not. Yeah, great. Yeah. And look, I saw people that never tweet about IndyCar tweeting about IndyCar this weekend. I saw Spencer Hall talking about driving over that bridge, and I just thought. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm glad that it got featured on people that don't normally talk about IndyCar. So there's definitely potential in this venue, um, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, sorry, I'm, I, I know I'm up in my feelings because at, once upon a time I used to live no more than a two-hour drive from where this race took place. But I mean, come on, there's yeah, there, there's God. I, I wish I wish I had that emotional attachment to New Hampshire Motor Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds. 
I'm sorry to say this, Cam. I love you, but that sounds like a you problem. I have no bones with that. I have no problem with that. That is a me problem, and I own that. NHMS sucks. That's yeah, fine. Fair enough. Stop racing in the rain at an oval, guys. Shout out Eric Almarola. Shout out Indeed. Marcus Erickson. Hey. Kings of the Indeed. shithouse victories. Cam, yep. old people are doing things. Old people are making proclamations. Old people are making pivots to sports cars. One very interesting, very legendary old person. Uh, some some old Italian guy called Valentino Rossi. Um, easily the biggest story out of MotoGP this weekend was the announcement that, yes, Valentino Rossi is retiring at the end of this, the 2021 season. In what can only be described as an extraordinary 25-year career, the 42-year-old will retire with at least 423 race starts, 363 of those being in either 500cc two-strokes or MotoGP four-strokes. Let's just uh, rattle off the stat sheet right right here. Uh, Nine world championships, 55 pole positions, 115 wins, 199 podium finishes. It's all right at this whole riding a bike thing. Decent. We don't know exactly <laughs> what Valentino will do in his future, but he has openly expressed a desire to race sports cars, as he's done as a bit of a hobby in the last few years, with the 24 Hours of Le Mans and the World Endurance Championship being a long-time goal for him, as well as, in his old age, starting a family. Yeah, well, he's finally settled down, y'all boy, as well. Uh <laughs> Jeez, it took him long enough. Um, <laughs> totally minor, um, just uncontroversial story. No, what do you guys no, no. think? <sighs> what do you make it's, of it? It's like finding out that Santa isn't real. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's... It's a shock I'm, to the I, system. I... It's one of those stories where it's like, you know it's coming, but when you actually face the reality of it, it still hits you. Um, And this sport will never be the same without him. There is... And look, you're you're talking to a guy here, you're listening to a guy that has openly expressed he is not the biggest Valentino Rossi fan in the world. And I'll tell you this for free. This sport would not be where it is today. It might not even exist, period, if it wasn't for Valentino Rossi. I grew up in a time... Not in this form, no. Like, I grew up in a time in the late 90s as a kid where World Superbikes were still the most prominent, relevant series, biking-wise, that people would watch. Carl Fogarty, Troy Corsa, Noriyuki Haga. Mick Dillon was so dominant in 500cc two-strokes that he made everyone think that there were no other good riders in 500cc. Exactly. And, and people were bored. People people didn't find doing great to watch. So they watched World Superbikes where it was competitive and fun and Carl Fogarty was a hero in the UK. Like, they, they made video games after him, for fuck's sake. He was that popular over here. Um, which I still have. I've got a copy of Ducati World downstairs. Uh, point is, is that Valentino Rossi fundamentally changed bike racing forever. There is no argument in my mind about that. He was incredibly dominant. He had an infectiously likable personality that captivated sports fans the world over. And 
he turned the sport into a watchable, likable brand. That's something that, you know, he was gold dust. They, they like they, they don't make them like that in sports every day. Like when it we tur- we use the we throw the word goat around an awful lot in sports discussions these days. I do not exaggerate when I say that Valentino Rossi is a genuine sporting icon. Like I like I work in sports all the time. I work in the bookies. The one bike guy people mention is Valentino Rossi on a casual level. They don't talk about Mark Marquez or Jorge Lorenzo or Danny Pedrosa, Kenny Roberts or anyone else from the multiple eras of the sport that he has spanned. It's Valley. The yellow helmets, the doctor, the winning, the showmanship, the charisma. It's all Valentino. He's the reason why we're here, most likely as bike fans. And that just about sums it up for me. I don't know if anybody else has got any thoughts on that, but uh, yeah, I'll take care I just, ahead, uh, I just, my, my power just, uh, am I still here for you guys? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you are. Okay, very you good. You saw that light flash, right? Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did. Um, I was like, wait a minute. It really is hot outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, RJ. Look. Go ahead, RJ. Yeah. yeah. I, uh... It hits different when you see, like, a list of, like, the 10 highest-earning athletes in the world at one point in time. And especially, like, during Valentino Rossi Prime and Valentino Rossi, a motorcycle rider. You realize how niche this sport is. It's like a niche within a niche. And Valentino Rossi is up there on, like, the highest earners list with, like, Tiger Woods in, in his prime before the Perkins incident. You know, this is it's wild and it's well learned because Prime Valentino Rossi was like Prime Valentino Rossi was like the one serial winner that we could all stand because like at a certain off. point everybody got sick of Schumacher winning all the time everybody got sick of Sebastian Loeb people blame Sebastian Loeb for the reason why WRC isn't what it used to be anymore you know nobody likes a serial winner but Valentino Rossi somehow managed to do it and did it with multiple manufacturers he decided right I've done everything I need to do with Honda I don't like these guys anymore I'm going to go to Yamaha and then I'm just going to build upon that legacy uh, exponentially. About the only thing, about the only manufacturer he couldn't work miracles with was Ducati, but that was kind of out of his hands. Just showmanship, charisma, likability, everything that Dre said, and then some. Like, I'll tell you, like, I'm so glad I got to grow up in the time where Valentino Rossi was just doing his thing every other Sunday. Okay. I uh he is the one motorcycle rider who absolutely transcended motorcycle racing. Oh, there yeah. is a reason why there is a there is a racing game called Valentino Rossi the game that should have been a MotoGP game, but was really Valentino Rossi's everything with an engine. Yeah. Mm. Everything he stepped onto that wasn't a uh, carbon fiber frame Ducati, he won on. Uh-huh. Against all the mightiest riders of his era, of the Alien era, and he even held, you know, in 2015, he came damn close. Yeah, that's the thing we'll always talk about. To one last championship, even 15 years on from his debut in the sport, in the top flight. 
That's the thing. He the wrote two strokes. Win. The second he, win. Nobody ever carves out like a career, like into their middle post late injury as well. Yeah, he's already his fucked leg. his leg. Badly. He shattered his leg in 2010, and he still came back. Yeah, and it took him time. He won on two strokes. He won on four strokes. V4s, V5s, inline fours. 1,000 cc, 800 cc. He did it all. We didn't think and until up until, they, up until, up like until these last, last couple years. years. You'd never think he'd fall off. No. Yeah, uh, you know, he always... He was never the best qualifier, although saying he was never the best qualifier and um, <clears throat> 55 pole positions... It's quite still, a terrifying statistic. He's still third on the all-time list for pole positions in all classes. Mm. Only Dewan and Marquez have more. But until these last couple of years, really until the Michelins came in and mm. uh, really started uh, messing with everybody up and down the grid, he was, always, he was always the Sunday man. He always had the speed on Sunday when it counted. Oh, yeah. And... It's not an exaggeration. I know this was mentioned within the paddock, but... He's very much the Michael Jordan of MotoGP. He made it a global, watchable entertainment sport. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the amount of that, people... That's not to cut you, Cam, but the amount of people uh-huh. that made tributes saying that Valentino Rossi was their hero growing up, riding motorcycles. Alex Rins, Alicia Spargaro... Like the reigning world champion, Johan Mir, well, like Maverick Vinales, Fabio Quattararo, they all said the same thing. I grew up watching Valentino, which also makes us all feel really old being a bunch of like late 20-somethings on this show, realizing these are world champs that are like five years younger than us, that, that are literally like young enough to possibly be a son of Valentino's at this point. But uh, yeah, they it, all it's... said the same thing. Look, when you see that 46 in that font, in that color, you know. You know, you know who it oh, is. Yeah. You know exactly who it belongs to. And, yeah, oh, my God, like, where do you even start on such a on a, on a career so legendary? But um, I'm going to go around the room real quick, because uh, if you had to pick out just one Valentino moment as your favorite, which would it be? This is gonna, I think I'm going to get a very mixed response here, but... Um, I've got one. Go on, Cam. As a... I think I was five, six years old at the time. He got a penalty at (laughs) Phillip Island. I know this is one. Yeah. And we had never seen Valentino Rossi at 100%. Not really. Yeah. Not until that day. And he was pulling times over a second a lap on everyone and it yeah. did he was he was unstoppable that was that was one of those in that era you didn't really see those bikes move around a lot you know no. post post two stroke um the chassis tech wasn't super advanced like it is now and you could see just the way he was riding the bike this is Sim riding at the absolute limit of his ability. Mm. And the gap between him and everyone else that day was as big as I have ever seen in any form of motorsport. I think he won by 15 seconds on the on the road. He was given a 10-second penalty for, I think it was overtaking on the yellow flags. 
Um, and I think Rossi later himself admitted that was the only race he'd ever been at 100% right from the very start. Um, because he knew that anything less we wouldn't have won, and he absolutely curb-stomped the field. <laughs> RJ, you got one? <sighs> I'm going to go with the cliche. I, I, I want to go with the cliche response. It, it's, it has to be Catalonia 2009. It just yeah. has to be. Jorge Lorenzo is like the one teammate that Rossi has had in like a long time, maybe ever, that has pushed Rossi on equal equipment as hard as he had. He is hitting his stride. And you think with a corner to go that Lorenzo is winning this race because the last corner of Catalonia is not known as an overtaking hotspot, but Valentino Rossi pulled the up and under on him. That's like, that's still one of the most special races. I know it's a cliche. I know it's probably like everybody's number one answer, but it just, it has to be. What other moment could it have been? Maybe you're thinking start of 2004. Maybe the start of 2004. It's Rossi's first race at Yamaha, and I believe it's Matt Biaggi's first race at Honda? Yeah, they both swapped around. They flip plays him thinking, finally, Matt's has it to where he's finally going to win his first title because Valentino Rossi's just went to a mid-tier bike. Matt Biaggi, we know what he's done on a Yamaha. He's dragged that thing. Now we're thinking he's going to win the championship. First race weekend, Rossi edges out Bianchi and... Biagi, and yeah, it, it just plays out like for that for the rest of the season. Only time ever in MotoGP history a rider has won back-to-back races with different manufacturers. Because <laughs> he won his last ever race for Honda. Um, and then before making the switch, and then he won at Fakisa in South Africa. King, you got one? <sighs> well, I was going to go with RJ. <laughs> with RJ, yeah. but... To if, be if, fair, Catalina and Nine's a great pick. <sighs> yeah, but... If, Another thing that came up during Ross's retirement was a lot of people, including a lot of people on the server, saying that Valentino Rossi is the greatest MotoGP rider of all time. And my instant reaction was like, wait, no, he's not. How could you say something like that? <laughs> like, Giacomo Agassini's still alive. <laughs> it's like, Agassini's still here. He's still alive. And, they wheeled him out for the press conference. Yes. So like- <laughs> and Agassini had made comments to the press about Rossi's retirement. And... He was a bit critical, and he he said mm. that Rossi's retirement was a bit emotionless, and he, wow. even though he admitted that, like, the minute that he heard about this press conference was going to happen, he knew that Rossi was, was retiring, and he he recalled his own retirement from, from motorcycle racing, and he said that... Uh, Obviously, that retirement is something that every major athlete has to think about, and it comes for all of them. They all have to retire at some point in their careers. And when he made the decision to retire, he cried for three days straight. Uh, oh, wow. wow. And wow. he said that he could never be as happy as he was on a, on a MotoGP podium. That that he could be that he could be chosen as Italy's next president, and he still wouldn't be as happy as <laughs> when he when he last went on the podium. And that basically that your your racing career is something that you'll cherish for the rest of your life. And when you choose to retire, that's when all that emotion it should hit you. That 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 part of your life is gone. It's never coming back. 
It's a very good point. It's actually a very interesting way of looking at it because King's right. I think it was quite an emotionless press conference. It was all just like acceptance. It was just like, yeah, I think it's been. We've heard so many rumors for so many years, and we've seen his decline as well. We and we've watched him slowly, you know, slowly fall back, and really, it hasn't been a long decline at all. Like it was almost like like a line in the sand where he started falling back. About a a year ago today, I I reckon, roughly. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's just... I think he knew. I think everyone kind of knew. It was just really putting pen to paper. Mm. And I think that's why it kind of... At at least the press conference kind of just felt like, yeah, cat's out of the bag, I'm retiring. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's going to hit once... Once we line up for the last race of the season. Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're going down. to have, I don't know what show they're going to put on in the final race of this season, but this, it's this going to be, better be tune, like the tune in the, because it's going to be big. You remember the Richard Petty fan appreciation tour, if you, if you at least read about it. I hope that's like that. The culmination of that times 10 because, because Valentino Rossi is about the, about the only athlete that's, or other than Mark Marquez, that's earned like such a send off, and yeah, I like to think, and I know he's fallen mm-hmm. off a bit, but wouldn't it be cool if he has his own version of the Kobe Bryant fifty point game on the way out? It would be pretty <laughs> cool. Look at the line. No, don't know if uh, like I, I wouldn't say it's going to be the last race, but I think it's going to hit in Mazzano. Mazzano is going to be. Oh yeah, that's going to be place is going to be wild. They said. As well, full capacity crowd for Misano later in the year. That's going to be huge. <laughs> how do I? How do I speak? In so Italian? much yellow smoke. So much yellow smoke they can't even see the track. Folks, I need. I need to tell. I need to tell people in Italian, like, hey, if you haven't already, get your shots. Um, get <laughs> please do. Get, yeah. get your shots if at all possible because you want to see this. Yeah, yeah I, I was going to say just to add to that before we move on to the race itself. For me, it has to be probably the most famous MotoGP moment of them all, and that was that was Sepang 2015. And I know it sounds crazy. Oh, stop to- it, Miss! You know, I figured you were going to pick the one you wrote a book about. Oh, well, stop it, you! But that's the point, Carol. I wasn't even going to mention it directly like yeah. that. But that's the point. It inspired me to write, like me writing an entire book about something is in is ridiculous. But it was the most high-profile clash of personalities, of past meets present, of fan base v. fan base, of sporting culture that we'd ever seen on two wheels in one major flashpoint. Those highlights and, nearly have 100 million views on YouTube. No yeah. other racing highlight has that. Yeah. It no, was this, this is a beautiful. moment. That, it yeah. was a moment that transcended sports. Yeah, let alone when, 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 when it's athlete. being debated in Italian and Spanish parliaments, you know you've transcended sports. Seth like, Rosenthal, John Boys, if you're listening for video ideas, uh, we got one for you. Yeah, that's oh. pretty good. It, it, it's it's <laughs> oh. but uh, if, if 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 excluding shit that I wrote about Laguna Seca 2008, I think is right up there as well. His oh, race with Casey Stoner, that oh, other great pass. Which, which, which was the most one of the most intense, like half a races you will ever watch in your life that didn't quite go over that line like Sepang did. Um, mm. It was so, one and, of the. 
Yeah, it was one of the most incredible fights ever, ever on a MotoGP track. Like, like Stoner going around the outside of turn one to overtake Valentino Rossi at 170 miles an hour. You don't do that. No you one don't do that. that. <laughs> you don't do that at Laguna Seca. No, and then, and then Rossi cutting the like cutting him apart of the corkscrew to overtake Stoner is just the stuff of legends. Um, it's one of many incredible Rossi highlights, but uh, yeah. If I get to get a second one in... Go on, real quick. He was he was one of the protagonists in that the greatest fight, the greatest race for my money that I've ever seen. Australia Grand, Australian Grand Prix twenty fifteen. What a Valentino race. Rossi, Mark Marquez, Jorge Lorenzo, and Andrea Iannone. Remember when he rode a motorcycle? I know. Ooh. Beating the shit out of each other. Beating the shit out of the seagulls. Beating their tires. All race. There are so many moments in the, that 25-year career. Please, if you if you are a long-time motorcycle racing watcher, or you're just starting out, go watch some. You'll find some that you like. like that, I promise you. Great. And if you don't, the celebrations are pretty great, too. And that's part of the reason why people watch, because we were curious to see what would happen, what will come next. Him jumping into a portaloo. Genius. You know, you, 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 would, you would never think it would be, but it was. Valentino Rossi, we're, we're going to miss you, one way or another. We'll probably talk about it a little bit more again in November when the season finishes. Just look a little bit about the race itself. Yeah, yeah, we actually had a race as well. Yeah, apparently so. Let's, let, let's, let's talk about it. The Shimoto GP Styrian Grand Prix, and yeah, uh... It wasn't about some scares, because Austria can't help itself, unfortunately. Um, nasty incident that caused the red flag between Danny Pedrosa and Lorenzo Savadori. Um, Savadori um, losing control of his Aprilia, Pedrosa hitting it, and then the Aprilia bursted into flames. Um, there is a superb yeah. picture you may have seen on the internet of Danny Pedrosa looking on in the background as the track's on fire. And I just immediately thought, new meme format just dropped. Um, <laughs> because it's an incredible photo. It really is. If you haven't seen it, go out of your way to find it. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a crazy picture, but it's a, it's an incredible bit of photography. Um, I must say. Luckily, everybody relatively okay. Savadori just broke an ankle. He's had surgery on it. He's recovering now. He's probably, he's missing this week's race and probably be back for Silverstone in uh, three weeks' time. But uh, thankfully, everybody, okay. Uh, we got going again, second restart. And it was it was Jorge Martin and Yamaha Mir that broke off from the rest of the field. Quattararo didn't really go after them all that hard. Um, the only other major protagonist was Jack Miller. He crashed with about eight laps to go, just went in too hot at turn seven. Very strange incident there, just went in too hot. But, yeah, it was Martin who had qualified on pole position against Mir, who had a new ride height adjustment upgrade on Suzuki. Much more competitive. Um, but it was Jorge Martin that broke away at the end of the race, and MotoGP has its sixth different winner in just ten races so far this season. Um, and let's not forget, this is Jorge Martin's sixth ever MotoGP race. He was, he had a, he was badly injured. In Portimao, missed four rounds. Um, this is only a sixth ever race in the top flight. So he's two still recovering. Yeah, two podiums, two po- like two podiums, two pole positions, and now a race win. You would never know. You completely there. It is. There's the picture on Andre's <laughs> camera. Look at that. <laughs> I had to get that. It, I had to just get that off the phone because, like, I, I know I can't screen share from here, but that's a good photo. Y'all, oh, Jorge Martin. 
Wow. Whoa. Whoa. And and as a side note, Primax first win. Primax 20, first years first trying, ever, 20 years 20 of trying. 20 years of frustration. Primax first ever Grand Prix victory off the... Tw- this is their 20th season Finally. in Grand Prix motorcycle racing. They first debuted in 2002. Um, and this is their it's first ever... It's about damn ever. time. So, yeah, they've had... They've, had, they've come close plenty of times. Um, nurtured some great talent. No one in the field deserved their first win more than Pramac did. Oh. They've they've been banging it, on that door for a couple of years now. How many second um, places do they have just this year via Zarco? Like three, three or four. Or four. Like three or four alone, they had plenty in previous years with Jack Miller and, and Danilo Petrucci when he was riding for him as well. Um, as far back as maybe 2014, we had Petrucci on the podium for Pramac, but never a win. Um, how impressive was that, fellas? Because that was scintillating uh, was stuff. Perfect all weekend for Martinez. qualifying to the race. <laughs> Held his nerve against the reigning world champion, did not break. Came a little close with the track limits, but, you know. Yeah. Ooh, a lot of people did this weekend. Um, yeah, yeah. Some, sometimes the sensors were actually going off when people weren't going off the track. That's fine. Normal, uh, normal stewarding process. Um, Jorge Martin was fantastic. He is good. He is damn good. And all that talent pool at KTM, and they let this one slip through the cracks, might be Ooh. the best one of all. Mm, um, more on that later. <sighs> however, I have to I have to pitch this question to everyone here. This is the Red Bull ring. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Ducati's playground. Mm-hmm. They barely beat a Suzuki and a Yamaha around here. What can I tell you? That Suzuki high right, right height adjusting device, that's no joke. No. That, Mir couldn't do anything with him just from sheer horsepower discrepancy. But, jeez. Martina had to ride out of his skin to keep that win. It's yeah. a good thing they did, because that was brilliant. But yeah, you're right, Cam. Like this is this is a track that is tailor made for Ducati. That was that was supreme. But if you look at the rest of the Ducatis, Zarco was fifth and and you know, was making errors at the end of the race. Banyana put on the wrong set of tires and fell all the way down the order from a front row start. He was leading the first run of this race. He got yeah, robbed. Yeah, he got robbed. He didn't, he didn't have a new set of tires to put on after the red flag. He, he, he made the exact same blunder that Mir made last year in a race he was leading. Um, and that did him in. Same same problem there. And Miller binned it at turn seven. Like, so he potentially put his championship hopes on yeah. the floor. Yeah, back-to-back DNFs for Jack Miller. So, yeah, bad news where that's concerned. I, I um, just don't think... I don't think... You- I don't think the Ducati bike is just equipped to go for a championship. It's all horsepower and vibes. It doesn't corner. <laughs> it doesn't stop. It beats its tires to death. And yeah. the only two riders who seem to be able to force it to turn are Martin and Banyaya. And they're destroying their front tires to do so. Yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a big problem, and they're not going to win a title this way. As as, as Quattararo is just going to keep racking up these podiums, these good results. The real winner was third place. Yeah, again, not for the first time this season either. Fabio, 
was celebrating third like a whim because he knew that championship-wise, Martin's not a threat and Mir's 50 points back. So, Sigma um, grind set. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Um, now, of course, a lot because of the fire in the red flag, a lot of people talked about the, the nature of safety at the Red Bull ring. Um, some of the riders actually made complaints in the media that, you know, the, the track had not we really had... been improved all that much. What we should talk about first and foremost Mm. regarding safety is the threat of rain and the fact that Mm. we were looking at a rider strike if it rained on on race day. We were looking at at the riders sitting this one out. Yeah, because this track track is what we've, we've mentioned before. Barely okay in the dry, in the wet, lack of runoffs, incredibly high speed. If somebody loses it at high speed two. in the rain, ooh, turn two no, gets no, no, different. No, 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 no. You bad, have half bad, bad to work with. So yeah, that's something for, for for those who are who might not be familiar with the, the bike side of this track. Turn two, what we're talking about is not the sharp right hander, because actual turn two is such a non-event in cars that you don't even really think about it. Right. On bikes, you are constantly turning for a few seconds for a few seconds. And the bike is under load, and you're approaching that corner at an angle at about 190 miles per hour for the really fast bikes. Have you ever played yeah. Grand Valley Speedway in a Gran Turismo game? It's like that, only it's scarier. Yeah, yes. much, very much so. So there's been a potential solution offered by the track itself, and as RJ's very handily put in picture form, a potential chicane bet- between turns two and three um, has been proposed to reduce some of the reduce some of the speed. This is the fastest track we go to on average speed on the calendar. What do you guys make of it, and is it the potential solution to make things safer? Well, it's it's not really between turns two and three. It's exactly where turn two is. It would effectively yeah, yeah. eliminate it. Yeah, you, you'd be turning turn two into a chicane essentially. So I. I don't like it because I think there's a better solution that we talked about last year when we had the monster crash that uh, almost right. Let's let's not let's call a spade a spade. Probably would have killed both Yamaha riders. Um, the notion of putting a chicane there seems to be this this idea of fast track bad, and I don't necessarily subscribe to that. What I would like to see instead is the track run on, and there's more than enough room to do this, run on straight as the track starts to pull to the left on that run up Mm. towards turn three, towards turn two and turn three. Instead of pulling left for turn two, go straight on and then copy turn three now and place that on as the transition between that straight after turn one and the back straight. The DRS straight uh, for that, uh, that the wouldn't, Formula One. That wouldn't be possible due to the, the elevation changes at the venue itself and then the need to build runoff area behind that, and there's a building in that area. Mm-hmm. So, is this chicane the answer? Uh, I think it's, it's a decent solution. Obviously, it'll slow down the bikes, but it also thin out the bikes. You wouldn't have people side-by-side side through two anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
which that can be a problem. I mean, goodness knows we're we're already like trying to think of ways that we could break up the Moto three pack because as fun as that is, that's also really fucking dangerous. Yeah. 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 Um, side side note: If you've not seen Matt Oxley's latest piece in in collaboration with Jurgen van der Gerber, go out of your way to read it. It's a fascinating read on a potential way to make Moto three a bit safer. I'll give you a hint: it's to do with the gearboxes. Might surprise you on that one, but give it a read. It's a very, very good per- piece from Matt Oxley. Piece. Mm. Yeah, one of the best in the biz, Matt Oxley. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm looking at it and I go, that could work. Like that, you would actually open up another, maybe another overtaking opportunity as well. And most importantly, you wouldn't have two bikes going side by side through two at 190 like we had with Zarco and Morbidelli last year. And that was what caused that hellacious wreck. That and the fact that obviously. The, the bikes fan back out onto the track, and then they've done a bit to fix that with extending the wall all the way up to the apex of Turn 3 now um, to try and mitigate some of that problem. But uh, yeah. Suzuka's had I, to do I, the same, of course. Like, the run out of the hairpin, through Spoon, there's a there's a chicane that they've installed there, and, you know, that's, that's helped out a lot for the bikes. Um, yeah. I, I agree with Cam that, like, if it were logistically possible, you could just straighten out and dull out and make a new turn three out of it. But if it's not logistically possible, this could work. I also don't yeah. necessarily describe the, tr- the idea of the fast track bad either. No. Yeah. The, 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 the overall speed is not the problem with the Red Bull Ring. It's the lack of runoff. And... Yeah. It's that specific run through. It's turn two, which again, a non-event in cars, because in cars you have a whole lot more tire to work with. Yeah. It's a legitimate, not only is it a legitimate corner, it's by that stage of the straight, over 175 miles per hour. Right. It's crazy. Right. One more question before we get out of here. This is a. This was the other uh, story that came out of MotoGP this weekend, and it was a bit of a hot, a bit of a hot one because it came up in the middle of FP2, which kind of surprised everybody that uh, KTM made it official that uh, Raúl Fernández, who's second in the Moto2 championship right now, is coming up with Tech Three next year. So the current Moto2 team is going straight up together to be the new Tech 3 team next year. They're cleaning the, the decks at, at Tech 3. Laquona and Petrucci are gone. Gardner and Fernandez are in. This apparently caused a lot of tension from in, within oh, the KTM yeah. camp. Herve Poncherol was not happy. <laughs> he mentioned that... Never want to mince words. No, um, I've got the quote in front of me here, actually, about, about Hervé Pontrol. Hervé Pontrol's one of the most honest dudes in MotoGP. And he said, and I quote, there are still some moves behind the scenes from some managements that are, there are some reflections. I'd like to tell you all this clear. It is contractually speaking, but we will wait to see how things will evolve. So... That is the most... That is the, the, the most, I'm just here so I won't get fined answer I think I've ever heard out of him. You could see, you could tell he was, he was he was pulling his punches on that one. Apparently, Raúl Fernández wasn't best pleased. He was keen to actually stay in Moto Two for next year, um, and Yamaha were apparently were about to activate the five hundred thousand euro release clause in his contract to snag him for the Patronus team yeah, for next they, year. They would have had to buy him out of the contract. Yamaha was willing to put the money down to buy him out. <laughs> Mm. I just love KTM. How, like, mm-hmm. 
this is a this is on paper a huge improvement to get Fernandez on your team. And for reasons that have nothing to do with your talent, this move has gone down poorly. <laughs> with everyone yeah. involved except KTN themselves, who, you know, their hands were tied. They had to do something because Roland Fernandez is uh, pretty good on a motorcycle, yeah, uh, in, case, in case you haven't noticed. And they were about to lose him, and they panicked. Yeah. They're like, just promote him now. We can't lose him to Yamaha. Don't care what Tech 3 thinks. Don't care what Fernandez thinks. You're going up. You're going up. Son. You're going up. Yep. Screw La Corona. Screw Petrucci. And screw Tech 3. And yeah. that is where the, the controversy lies here. Because, um, mm. well, Tech 3 less is less of a satellite and more of a Factory 2 electric Boogaloo for KTM. Yeah, pretty much. But... You don't want to be pissing off the people who uh, run your race team and the people who are still riding for your race team because uh, word out of the paddock is Petrucci wanted to fight everybody after this was, was announced. He was pissed. He I, was I get the pissed. impression that Danilo Petrucci is not a man who wants to go f- is in the Stay Ready Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, by all accounts, no. But he was—he was. Those hands were rated E for everyone. Yeah, he—he he was apparently—he was apparently incensed at the news because Petrucci said he'd been there for one season. He was—he's going to be a one and done guy at Tech Free. And then on the other side of the coin, when they told Michael Lapona, apparently he broke down in tears. Poor guy. Um, still only twenty-one years old. It's easy to forget that uh, he's been in and the shown improvement this year and genuinely been. Okay, this season, but apparently he broke down in tears when he found out the news he was going to lose his job. Um, and it looks like Petrix is done in the top flight altogether. It's looking like he's, he might be heading over to World Superbike. He's also shown intrigue in the Dakar, apparently. So that could be one to keep an eye on. Um, but uh, I want King's perspective. He's the day one KTM stand, self nicknamed on our Discord server. Uh, what did you make of that hot mess over there with, with, with your mans? All, all of your mans. <laughs> hey, as long as the Yamaha don't get him, I don't care. <laughs> wow! wow. As, he, as he pulls up his drink, you ruthless bastard. I, I love it. response if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah, because I was going to say, it's a messy situation there now, because, look, on pure talent, next year, KTM are stacked. Miguel Oliveira, Brad Binder, Remy Gardner... And Raul Fernandez is an across incredible their two teams. Talents. They might have the the best like well of talent across the whole sport. There's a genuine there's a genuine argument you can make for that. I wouldn't laugh you out of the room if you made that suggestion to me. Um, and then Binder's on a three year deal, and that's already tricky to work with in case somebody else comes along. They let Jorge Martin slip through their fingers in the first place, and there's one other problem. The man who won in Moto3 this weekend, Pedro Acosta, again. Yeah, Pedro Acosta. He's won five of these this season. They're not going to rush away and skip Moto2, but, you know, he's 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 going to be real quick. No, he's he's not old enough to do that. However, in in a couple of years, they're going to have a problem. Like, I I say this all the time about F1 driver academies, and it applies to, like, KTM and MotoGP, where it's like, it doesn't really matter if you have too many riders for few for too few seats. Your job here is not to get rider seats. 
Your job here is to get the best riders in the seats you have. If someone loses out, well, it sucks for them, but you got your end of the deal yeah, done. Well you can say well you can say it sucks for them, but Jorge Martin just won his first race. It's backfiring right in your face. Well, on the other end of the coin, Miguel Oliveira's won three for KTM since he got there. So, you know, so, it, you know, it kind of yeah. works both ways. Like, Oliveira's got three MotoGP wins already, and Brad Binder has a win to his name as well. So we, we can't say it's not working to it. Like, it was, they've, they're not, they're not only building... Hard. They're not only building the perfect team, they're building the perfect competitors to that team. <laughs> and, like, again, it's, it's all about... Filling needs, not supply and demands. Yeah, very true. But uh, I wonder how pissed off Fernandez is knowing he can't ride for a Yamaha next year. That 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 must suck a little bit, given that Yamaha were literally about to hand over the money in the bank briefcase and, uh, and activate that him, him, Patronus. him on a Patronus Yamaha. Would have been a very interesting prospect for next year. He's going to be running down in, like, 12th on a KTM. We'll see. We'll see. Because KTM blow hot and cold. Oliveira was a bit out of sorts this weekend, because before the summer break, he was on fire. Um, he had a, uh, I think he had a mechanical issue during the race. He did. He, he, had, he had a bad wrist as well, because he had a nasty high slide on Friday, too. But, uh, yeah. yeah, KTM uh, stacked, to say the least. And, hey, it's a good problem to have. But that'll do it for this week's episode of Motorsport 101. We'll be back next week. We Contact will have packed. Yeah, we have the Formula E season finale at Tempelhof, where one of eighteen different drivers can win the championship. Good no, luck. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna narrow it a lot of, <laughs> we're gonna narrow it down by a lot by the end of Saturday. Yeah. Remember, race yeah. two, we're going backwards. That's gonna be fun. Um, I do not envy the track organizers on that one. I'll have you know. But uh, yeah, 18 dudes can still win the Formula E Championship this weekend. We'll have to keep an eye on that one. We'll talk all about that season finale next week. And we've got MotoGP in Austria. We're back. We're going back to back. We have a second MotoGP race in Austria. Um, so that'll be talked about as well. And apparently, and, uh, there's some endurance race going on next weekend. Yeah, apparently. and um, some guy. In a, in a souped-up Chevy is going to be doing it for Dale. Our man Jordan Taylor. Taylor. Rodney Sandstorm himself with the Dale Earnhardt helmet. Beautiful. So you can't even see on television because it's a closed cockpit. <laughs> we got to wait for the onboards. we got to wait for the onboards. It's, on it's a Corvette. There will be, there'll be onboards that we won't be able to watch because the coverage in the United States is terrible, no good, and very bad. But Indeed. hey, at least this year uh, we'll have legitimate storylines and intrigue in the top class rather than which Toyota wins by how many laps. Indeed. So yeah, we'll there'll be a full preview of the Le Mans 24 Hours next week as well. But until then, basically you can find us before we get out of here. YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Subscribe if you haven't already. Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. We're on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. Our personal handles are on the screen right now at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, at CBuckley917, at RJ O'Connell. We're on Instagram at Motorsport101pod. Uh, our website, Motorsport101.com. We're written about a bunch of stuff as well. 
Um, I gushed over Hungary. It's uh, it's well worth a read if you're into that soppy shit. Uh, but but uh, we're also on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Five bucks gets you early access to all of our audio shows. Ten for the supporters club of our Discord server. Live recordings and video versions on demand as well. We'll be back next week to preview the greatest race in all of motorsport. Question mark. Oh, and Le Mans too. Uh, until then, I've been Andre Harrison. They've been Cam Buckley. RJ O'Connor, the Ryan Eric King. I'm going to now run away. Sayonara. Start running. <laughs> uh, I'm not perverted. I'm Irish, y'all. What? <laughs> 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 Please have respect for others if you are going to be a pervert like that. Don't, don't be an Andrew Cuomo. If you're going to be a pervert, be a respectful pervert. RJ oh, Cuomo 2021. <laughs>